Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I want to take a minute to thank you. We know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and we are grateful every time you show up. It has been a lot of fun over the past few months watching our audience grow and knowing that our guest stories are reaching more and more people. On that note, if you like what you're hearing, I ask that you consider sharing all the wiser podcasts with someone you think will like it too. You can text the link to a friend, leave us a review, or bring it up the next time you need to avoid an awkward conversation. All will get the job done. Now, on to today's interview with Khalil Rafati. In his 20s, Khalil left his small town with a dream of moving to L.A. and becoming famous. By the time he was 33, he found himself homeless, living on L.A.'s notorious Skid Row. His body looked like a skeleton, dropping to 110 pounds, and the lengths he went to fuel his daily heroin and cocaine addiction will leave you heartbroken. Today, we talk about what it's like to beg for money, the realities of being a homeless addict living on the streets, his nine overdoses hovering above his body, and ultimately, his path to recovery. The Khalil you will meet today is an incredibly successful entrepreneur and the face of his wellness brand, Sun Life Organics. He shares his path from being a high school dropout, convicted felon, and a recovering addict who didn't know how to spell or type, to creating a wildly popular and successful company. You will learn a lot about addiction, the underbelly of recovery, hope, and the power of kindness. For context, I mentioned Khalil's best-selling book, I Forgot to Die. Now, on to today's conversation with the incredible Khalil Rafadi. Welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Kimmy. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, excited to meet you in person. Beautiful day. Gorgeous day. I'm overly, overly caffeinated and overly excited uh, to to do this. So I want to start at the beginning. Tell me about your childhood. We're just going to dive right in. We're diving right in. Okay. Um, yeah, parents were immigrants from two different countries, two different religions, definitely should not have been in a relationship, however they were. And um, there was a lot of neglect and violence and incest, and it was pretty 
horrible. And who were you as a teenage boy? As a teenage boy, I was a terror. I was acting out nonstop, and I was acting out in any way that I could, um, mostly sexually, um, shoplifting, petty crimes, vandalism, just anything that I could do to get outside of my own skin and not be me. And at what point do you turn to drugs and alcohol or the arc of that? I don't know where it began. Drugs and alcohol started early, really, really early. I mean, remember my mother was working nights and my father was gone. I hung out with all the older kids because I was, you know, obviously desperately seeking to belong to something. And um, it also was really great in terms of uh, co-signing my, my behaviors because the older kids had access to cigarettes and beer and, and parties and whatever. So at a very early age, I, I, I think somewhere eight, nine, 10 was like the pretending to smoke and, and taking puffs off of a joint because that made everybody laugh and they thought it was really cute. It wasn't until like 12 where it got like really serious where I was like smoking pot consistently, getting my own alcohol. And then also um, pills were really big at that time. That's, that's also when the panic attack started. So you're already using regular, is it on a daily basis or how? Not daily, no, but um, anytime I could and the weekends for sure. The weekends I would just get blind drunk because that's when the other kids were able to stay out late. Like I always had to stay up late because I was terrified of going to sleep. I created this safety. I created this like fantasy make-believe world around me where I pretended that Johnny Carson was my dad. And I would watch Johnny Carson and his opening monologue back then used to be really long, like 20 minutes. And that was kind of like my safe place. I would get on the sofa and I would wrap myself up and I would watch Carson go into his opening monologue. And I, um, I pretended he was my dad. It's kind of weird to admit that now. And I'm also getting a little bit choked up thinking about how sad that is that a little boy had to pretend Johnny Carson was his dad. I know you left high school. You dropped out of high school. How old were you when that happened? Well, school in general, so they held me back in sixth grade. They kicked me out in eighth grade. I got accepted to another school, and then they kicked me out before that school year began because of an incident. And then I went to St. John's for a year, and then they kicked me out. And then it was my senior year that I eventually dropped out. So Why were you getting kicked out? What was happening? Um, all, all those behaviors, the drinking and using and acting out sexually and fighting, a lot of fighting, which I find so weird today because I'm not a tough guy and I've never been a tough guy, but my God, up until, up until my late twenties, I was that guy. And a lot of it came from boredom because it was a little tiny town in Ohio. Um, but a lot of it on my part was again, just wanting to get outside of myself. I didn't want to feel like me. So if I could get a girl to like me or if I could you know, fight somebody, it wasn't even about winning the fight or, or, or beating somebody up. Smashing bottles when I was a little kid turned into vandalism as I was a little bit older, turned into shoplifting, acting out sexually multiple times a day with you know different partners. Um, morphed into my young adult life, which was more more drugs and alcohol because drugs and alcohol were such an incredible coping mechanism. The using is scaling. 
you're no longer in school and you make your way to LA. How and why does that move happen? Things were getting much, much worse. 19, 20, 21, things were getting really, really bad. Uh, my depression and panic attacks and anxiety was just at all time levels where suicidal ideation really started to take hold. And I had been to LA once for a day when I was 17. I had been talking about moving out here for years just because that was another way of me escaping who I was and what my reality was. I'm moving to LA, I'm moving to LA. But after four years, people got tired of me talking about it. And I was challenged one night up in Detroit when I was really drunk and my friends were really drunk and they were like, bullshit, you're not, you're not ever going anywhere. You're going to be stuck here with us. And um, I left the next morning out of pride and out of fear and out of insecurity. And just, I, I couldn't take that they had called me on my shit. Did you have a fantasy of what your life in LA was going to be, what the city life was going to be like and who you were going to be? Of course. Of course. I was like every other idiot that comes out here from some godforsaken little town with all of their isms and schisms and depression and anxiety. I was going to become super famous, whether that was with acting or with singing, which I seemed to be pretty decent at both. Um, I was going to become super famous and then I was going to kill myself. That was my, that was my plan. At what point in LA does the addiction progress to the point where you end up homeless? I can remember a lot of blackout drinking. I can remember going back and forth with drugs here and there. Um, but when I started getting into, um, I started getting into like MDMA and, and psilocybin and ketamine and all that stuff. I also had some really incredible, profound breakthroughs. I, I, I had... I had some breakthroughs on MDMA and psilocybin that I'm guessing would have taken decades to have in therapy. What were those breakthroughs? I was able to go back and see the trauma firsthand and, and smell the trauma and experience it and watch it as a witness. And I was able to, I was able to come to terms with what had happened to me and see it objectively I saw my father not in a, in a hateful light, but I saw my father as a young man stuck inside an old man's body that didn't have the proper tools to navigate this world. And the purpose of this life is to really move through those dysfunctions and move past those traumas. The ultimate goal is to process everything that I'd been through, accept everything that I've been through, and then ultimately at whatever juncture I am or whatever crossroads I'm at in my life to recognize the fact that I myself and myself alone am 100% responsible for what's going on in my life, both good and bad, period. It sounds to me like that sort of healing revelation process, you were almost stepping outside your body and hovering above with a completely fresh perspective. I was. Yeah. Versus the loop. I was. And there was another, there was another Because the chemistry in your brain was being altered. So you could think about something differently. Because I was temperamentally on the depressive side when all of a sudden there was massive amounts of serotonin and dopamine flooding my, my brain. Um, yeah, I was able to see things clearly for the first time in my life. That, that stuff is, it's magic and it can make magical things happen but that's, it's not to be messed with. And I messed with it and I abused it and I took advantage of it. 
I was I was selfish and and hopped up on all kinds of different drugs and me feeling good was more important than your feelings or his feelings or her feelings or whatever. So eventually you end up homeless and on Skid Row. Mm-hmm. What what is that day where you end up living in Skid Row? What what is the breaking point where you're now? Like, like everything in my life, it was piecemeal. You know, going downtown to score the first time I'll never forget because it was very exciting. I heard that you could getting heroin in Malibu was very difficult, and I was in a rock and roll band, and certain people would have access to it, but it was always like a challenge. You always had to wait a few days, or someone had to go up to Oxnard. But then there was this rumor that you could go downtown to 7th and Broadway and you could literally take three steps and somebody would hand you balloons of heroin. And so we tested that theory and lo and behold, it was true. Unfortunately, I just kept going down and I kept going down. And then I started doing this thing where I would go and get like some cheap hotel in one of these, you know, flea scabies infested crack and, you know, crack hotels down there. Now, again, it's all gentrified, but it, but Back in the late 90s, the Cecil, the Rosalind, those were all like Section 8 housing and and essentially like, you know, $20 a night crack hotels. And I would go disappear down there, sometimes for shock value, sometimes for convenience, but I enjoyed it. I, I, I enjoyed myself. And sooner or later, that darkness and that energy got a hold of me. And again, as I was saying earlier, like you're not supposed to mess with this shit. You're not supposed to, especially if you have an addictive personality. So you just spoke to it, but how frequently are you using at this point? Every day. Every day. Yeah. And what are you doing? What are you using? Mostly heroin and cocaine, and cocaine meaning crack or coke. Um, I, you know, I got I started shooting up first, then I became homeless. So it's kind of there. There is a pecking order with that, and and. You know, there's homeless, like I'm living at my girlfriend's and then there's homeless, like I'm crashing on people's sofas. Then there's homeless, like I'm staying in hotels. I'm staying in crack hotels. I'm sleeping in my car, homeless. And then there's homeless, real homeless. Homeless where you're not eating and you're not bathing and you're not sleeping because you got to keep moving because if you stop moving, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get mugged or you're going to get raped or you're going to get something bad is going to happen. Um... So around 2001, I believe 2001 going into 2002 was, that was when I finally had just merged with the night and given up. And uh, my girlfriend at that time was put into treatment and then kind of taken away and sequestered. And I had no access to any of our accounts because they were in her name. And um, I got on welfare, I got on food stamps, and I started dealing. And I just began to live that life, that street life. I just adapted. I pivoted and I adapted. And when you're dealing, are you still homeless on the streets? Absolutely. Living on the street? Absolutely. What does the day look like of a homeless addict? Always moving, constantly moving. So less harm is coming your way. Um, you got to get well. And I don't expect your listeners to understand what get well means, but when you're a heroin addict and in the beginning, you use heroin and it'll, you know, the opiates will stay in your system for, you know, 24 to 36 hours. The more opiates you do, the more opiate receptors you create. So imagine if every, every time you ate a week later, you created another stomach. 
And then a week later, you created another stomach. And that's literally what happens to an opiate addict. Every eight days, you're creating more and more opiate receptors. So $5 a day worth of heroin is going to work for about a week. And then the following week, you're going to need $10. And then the following week, you're going to need $20. Or you suffer through the withdrawal, also known as getting sick or kicking, where your legs are literally kicking out. Um, or you're very industrious and you're on the move and you got your food stamp hustle and you got your welfare hustle and you got the girl that lives in Palisades or Malibu that wants to score drugs every now and then and is afraid to do it. So she's going to give you a thousand bucks for a gram. I had a director that lived on the beach down here on State Beach in one of those beautiful giant homes that usually once a month or so he would, you know, somehow get a hold of me and I would call him and he would say, yeah, man, I want some stuff. And we would do the handshake deal. But the handshake deal involved him giving me thousands of dollars, number one, to keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody who he was. And number two, to bring him heroin at two o'clock in the morning. At which point you would turn around and buy? A ton. I don't know. It would go well for a while from time to time. And then it would fall apart and I would find myself going through unspeakable horrors at, you know, one o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. There's shit that goes on down there that would turn people's stomachs inside and out. Give me an example. There, there's groups of men that will, uh, that will rape another man in front of everybody in a circle as a sign of dominance or because it's funny. Um, it's not a sexual thing with these guys, but it's, 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 it's like a pack of wild dogs that will just, I'm sure you've seen, other people have seen a male dog will sometimes grab another male dog and just start humping it. Like that's a, that's a sign of dominance. And that goes on in our species as well. And, and supposedly the theory is that the further you get away from society, the more crazy you become. And I watched it firsthand on the streets. I watched, I watched people getting thrown out of windows. I watched people, um, yeah, people getting stabbed, people getting raped, people, um, all kinds of horrible stuff and horrible stuff happening to me. And, and, you know, I talk about it briefly in my book and I did it briefly because I was advised to keep it briefly, but because I am, because I'm not a tough guy, I had to do things to get money for drugs and the food stamps and the welfare only lasts for so long. So I had to do things with my body to get drugs and service other people to get the yeah. drugs you needed. Yeah. How many times did you OD? Real ODs, like the ones where you wind up in a hospital, nine times. But but as far as how many times did I OD, I OD'd almost every time I shot cocaine. Shooting heroin and shooting cocaine are two entirely different animals. And normally someone is is a heroin addict, or normally someone is a cocaine or a meth addict. Shooting heroin, you want to get well, and you want to be sedated. You're, you're seeking a, a different type of high and shooting meth or shooting Coke, you, you want to shoot right to death's door. I was mixing cocaine and heroin together, which is a lethal combination. I mean, a lot of people will do that once like John Belushi and they're dead. I'm making all these references that are like from the 70s. I hope people get these references, but <laughs> okay. But yeah, it, mi mixing them together is a really, really bad idea because you're speeding your heart up and you're slowing your heart down at the same time. And it's just a bad idea. Although 
Having said that, it's the ultimate high. There is no high higher than shooting a speedball, meaning shooting heroin and cocaine together. And I, towards the end, got into the habit of doing speedballs around the clock. I didn't give a shit. I was seeking oblivion. I was, I knew I was going to die anyway. I might as well get high as fuck before that actually happened. So nine like proper overdoses, uh, one like death floating above my body overdose where they had to use a defibrillator on me and the rest of them were just hospitalizations, <laughs> just hospitalizations. I can't believe I just said that. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, but I have to admit because if I can't be transparent and honest with you, then there's no point in doing any of this. But I thought it was glamorous. It seemed exciting. It seemed like it was going to make a great book someday or a great movie. It made a great book. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of the things I heard you share in an interview, I think talking about what it means to be homeless, 99% of the people who have encounters with um, homelessness and homeless people, it is often panhandling. I mean, mm -hmm. you see it certainly in LA everywhere. You're driving yeah. down the street and <clears throat> and you talked about how degrading that process was for you, um, in part because of the larger landscape of people who were homeless. Can you explain the perspective from a panhandler? I became a panhandler because I was good at it. Um, I looked awful. I was really, really skinny. I mean, you can see in that picture, I was 109 pounds and I was covered in open sores and um, people felt bad for me. So handing me money was, I think, out of guilt, out of shame. I don't know. Um, what What is it like to panhandle? It, I mean, it's horrible. It's degrading. It's, you know, I was a beggar. Um, I will tell you, one story I don't I don't remember if I talked about this and I don't think I talked about this in the book. I've been driving past where there was a 7-Eleven and um and if there is still a 7-Eleven there, I'm blocking it out and I'm blocking it out intentionally because I remember going into that 7-Eleven, there was a line and I was so dehydrated and I I was so hungry and I was and someone had just given me money. And I really wanted, there was this blue Gatorade that I loved. And um, I went in there and I remember I waited in line and I got up to the front and the guy behind the counter looked at me and I had my Gatorade on the counter and I had my money in my hand and I'm going like that and he's just staring at me and I'm like, why is this guy staring at me? I just want my Gatorade. I just want to drink my Gatorade. And... uh he stopped and he went over and he put on latex gloves and then he took my money and then he rang me up and then he handed me my change and he looked at me with such disgust and shook his head and I just started crying. I just started, I walked out, I was drinking my Gatorade and crying and, you know, eventually sobbing and just felt like such a piece of shit. I felt like really, really, really bad. I mean, I had already obviously felt bad enough about myself, but like the fact that the dude was scared to even touch my money was like one of the lowest points in my life.
What is the point in your life when you decide that you want to get clean? A heroin addict or a junkie or a drug addict or whatever term you want to use always wants to get clean and they always want to be high. That's the great conundrum. That's the crazy paradox about it all. We, we all always have this fantasy and dream and hope of getting clean and sober. And we also always have this desire to be high. And that's why most people never get out. That's why there's like a 95 to 97% failure rate. What they don't teach people, what they don't educate people on is there is a thousand ways to get high. There's only one way to be clean and sober and that's abstinence, but there's a thousand ways to get high. That's, that's where we have failed as a country and that's where our educational system has failed. We need to really show young, I would say children, starting with children first and then young adults and then teenagers. We need to show them, first of all, what is going on with their brains? Why didn't anyone tell us this stuff? Why didn't anyone explain to us the reason that drugs feel good is because they're releasing serotonin and dopamine. But you know what? So does a hot fudge sundae. So does yoga. So does falling in love. So does catching your first wave. So does climbing a mountain. So does doing charitable acts for other people without getting caught. That's one of the greatest fucking highs on the planet is doing amazing stuff for people and not having anyone know about it except you. Because anybody can do this. Anybody with a minimum wage job can do this. Next time you go to a restaurant, scan the room, find... I did it recently at Santa Monica Seafood. There was an older woman that that had come in and she was sitting behind us. I don't know how she got there. I hope to God she didn't drive, but she was really having difficulty ordering and she was claiming that someone was coming to meet her and she didn't want them to take away the other table setting. And I think the waiter or waitress knew that there was no one else coming to meet her. And I'm, I'm dying. I mean, I had a fucking lump in my throat. My life is so full and so amazing right now. And it's a simple, tiny gesture. But when she came back over and we were finishing up, I said, do me a favor, very quietly. I said, put her bill on my bill and don't tell her. And the waitress lit up. And the kid that works for me that I was treating to dinner lit up even more. And I lit up as well, even though this is something that I try to do as often as I can. And came over and assigned the thing. And when I was walking out of the restaurant... I looked at the lady and I just gave her a big, giant, full smile, full of love and light. And I, and I, and I, and I gave that to her energetically, physically. And she looked up at me and she smiled. Um, but a little gesture like that, try it. First of all, I think that educational philosophy and perspective is genius. <laughs> and I hope it's implemented. Thank Maybe you. you'll implement it one day because I think it makes all the sense in the world and would be incredibly impactful for the next generation. But I want to just share with you and telling that beautiful story about the woman in the seafood restaurant and the gesture of the bill, but beyond that of looking at her and smiling at her, it's the exact opposite of what that clerk did to you, which is just being seen which is what everybody wants. And I think that's heavy with homelessness. People don't see you. They look away. And I think with elderly people, men and women, it's the same thing. 
So I think that's as much service as the bill, equally powerful. An addict always wants to be sober, a piece of them. Yes. What is the day that you became sober? June 18th, 2003. Why? A horrible, horrible, horrible overdose. Worst overdose I'd ever had. And this particular overdose, I was somewhat conscious for it. And I lost my sight. It was straight cocaine. I shot way too much cocaine. I lost my sight and I lost the use of my legs. And so as I was trying to run away, I I could hear sirens coming. And as I was struggling to get away, the only thing I could do was crawl and then eventually make my way into this gully and then roll down into this gully. And then my arms worked and I was able to cover myself with leaves and twigs and sticks and whatever. But then I couldn't move because the cops had arrived, a lot of them. I could hear that. Your hearing is really, really um, awake when you're on cocaine. You can hear everything, even things that aren't happening. But anyway, I couldn't move. That was it. I I, I laid there for hours and eventually the, the my legs sort of came back um, and my vision sort of came back, although it was really blurry. And I, I had prayed for hours, you know, please don't let me get caught. Please, I don't want to be blind. Please let my legs work again. I was just done. I was, I was, you'll hear this in 12 step meetings. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I mean that so literally. I was so sick and tired of living the way that I had lived. I had bottomed out and bottomed out and bottomed out. And had anyone enabled me, I would have continued on. That's the hardest thing for me to convey to parents who have a loved one that's struggling because they never want to kick them out of the house. They never want to cut them off financially. They never want to stop enabling because what if they die? What if they die anyway? You know how many parents I know that continued to enable their son or their daughter and found them dead in the bed that they were letting them sleep in with money that they gave them? It's horrible. Tough love is something that has to happen. What is the process of coming off the drugs and getting clean and sober? It's it's really, really tough. I mean, it's really, really, really tough. But it's nowhere near as tough as the alcoholic or addict makes it out to be. We're very dramatic people and we're very overly sensitive people, um, overly sensitive to the point that that's probably- Are you in a tank? Are you in rehab? Are you, how, how does it happen? I mean, I, I did it in county jail. I did it on my comfy sofa prior to losing everything. I did it, um, yeah, I did it on a cold cement floor. I did it on a cot. I did it in a, in a convalescent bed at Pasadena Recovery Center. I don't know. You do it wherever you got to do it. You shit yourself and you piss yourself and you cry and you scream and you turn different colors and it's a it's a horrific it's a horrific thing to go through but I am grateful that I didn't have someone that was going to spend 80 grand to send me to some plush rehab overlooking the ocean where I would be completely comfortable as I went through my process cuz guess what I would have done as soon as I had left I go get high again. Why wouldn't I? If there's no consequences to me getting high, why would I stop? But there's so much emphasis on making the addict comfortable that I I really think it's enabling. 
I really do. So the discomfort served you. There was no way in hell I was ever going to feel like that again. I spent three weeks turning inside out, sweating profusely, shitting the bed, pissing myself, crying, sleep paralysis, nightmares, delirium and tremens. You know, I thought the night guard guy was hired by some dad who was like going to kill me or something. Like I, oh my God, it was so, it was so awful. And thank God, it was so awful. So you're clean and sober. And I was surprised when, when I read this. It was in fact eight months after the day you became sober that you truly hit rock bottom. Oh, you're talking about when I got the call from my mom. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about that day. Um, I was cruising along. I, you know, I found some people that were nice and generous and kind and let me crash at their place and give me money and drive me to 12-step meetings. And essentially, I was being a beggar and a homeless guy. And um, I got a call from my, I got a call from my mother and she sounded very distraught. She started crying. She told me she had cancer. And she told me it didn't look good. And I played it tough in front of the person I was in front of at that time. We were at Marmalade Cafe in Malibu. But I went back to the little guest house that I was living in and uh, completely broke down and freaked out and sobbed. And I hit such an emotional bottom. And I was crying and sobbing and punching myself in my thighs over and over again and calling myself a piece of shit. And I hated myself for not being able to be there for my mom. I hated myself. So you, that's a turning point. I mean, any rock bottom is a turning point. And where you are today, sitting it, with it, me. It, it, yeah, it wasn't just a turning point. It was a paradigm shift because in that in that dark night of the soul that, that I went through, the ultimate bottom of bottoms, where I realized, here's the woman that gave birth to you. And not only can you not help her financially with her struggle while she's going to go through chemotherapy and all that shit, I couldn't even go visit her. I didn't have the money to go visit her. What kind of a fucking worthless piece of shit can't be there for the woman that gave birth to you? I mean, it was it was horrible. It was the worst feeling ever. So that moment sparks, not to put words into your mouth, but an impetus to provide and uh, work, provide, create monetary value driven by your love for your mother and the uh, hope that, is that right? Yeah, is that a, fair? A, a hunger woke up inside of me that was so fierce and so profound that there was nothing I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to break the law, but anything within my power that was legal, I was going to go do. Now, remember, I'm a high school dropout. I'm a convicted felon. I can't spell. I can't type. So my, my, um, the possibilities of what I was going to do to make money were, they were pretty limited. It didn't stop me. I didn't care. I, I went and raised my hand at 12 step meetings and said, I need to make money. I need work. Can somebody please give me work? And the, this, there was a, a gay couple named Chris and Glenn. They let me clean their apartment. There was a, uh, like a handyman general contractor type named Daryl Cobb who hired me the next morning to come and do some construction work actually up here in the Palisades. I did anything. I did anything and everything. And people loved that. People saw that desire in me to work hard and 
there was still a little bit of goodness left over in me from Ohio. And I just, I just worked. I worked around the clock. I worked around the clock. I, I went up to Fred Siegel at the coffee bean and I asked him if I, I, I said, I would do anything if I could work at that rehab that you own. And Freddie, you know, true to form said, do you have a pen? Uh, he said, write down this number, 457-3209. And I wrote down the number and uh, he said, ask for Leo and tell him Freddie said to hire you. And that's how I got my first real job was working for Fred Siegel. I was 35, yeah, 35 years old. So I know you went on to start your own recovery center. Yes. I want to jump ahead of that yeah. and and um, and get to Sun Life Organics, which is the the brand and experience that you have created. At what point do you have the vision, the entrepreneurial vision to start this company? I'm not a chef. I did not go to culinary school. I'm not a businessman. I can't even finish high school. God, whatever you think God is, whatever it is that created all of this, tapped me on the shoulder and placed in my lap this beautiful idea of Sun Life Organics and gave me all of the necessary tools, brought all of the necessary tools to me. I don't want to say effortlessly because look, there was a lot of hard work in the beginning, but when I look back on all of it, this thing you know, I wish I were smarter or more educated and I could give you a name, but this thing, this God, this thing gave me Sun Life Organics and then I gave you Sun Life Organics. I am just a conduit. And despite all of my shortcomings and mistakes and character defects and and just lack of experience, I have failed my way to absolute success. Do you think you would have the success of your present without the darkness of your past? No, God, no. No chance. No chance. The darkness of my past, the darkness of my past gave me the, the tiny little bit of humility that I possess, which is so necessary to navigate the waters of, of life and business and success. Um, the humility came through that bottoming out. I had to go through that. I had to, I had to suffer and go, I had to suffer and go through what I went through in order to have empathy for other people that are suffering. The goal is to serve. The goal is to inspire people. The goal is to, as it says on the wall, the goal is to love, heal, and inspire people through nutrition, through example, and through my story. So yeah, of course, I had to be that guy in order to be this guy sitting here. Speaking of that guy, and we have your book sitting in front of us and you're pointing to that picture, there is a physical transformation that is unbelievable. Explain what you looked like, your physical being as an addict, and explain now. Or I'll explain if you want to be humble. <laughs> Um, I'll I, explain the now. I, I was, I, as I said earlier, and I'll say it again, and I can't say it enough unless you actually go on my Instagram and, and you look at, because I have pictures on there, uh, Polaroids from when I was first checking into rehab. I was 109 pounds. I had scabies and ringworm, and uh, I was filthy, and my hair was falling out. My teeth were falling out of my head. Um, I thought for sure I was dying of AIDS because I looked like an AIDS patient. 
I mean, even in that picture on the book, you can see those splotches all over me. So I was just, I was shot out. I was absolutely physically a mess. Um, and I look like an old man. I definitely at 33 years old, I look like an old man. And at, at what am I now? 49 at 49 years old, about to turn 50, I am by far the great in the greatest shape of my life. And I've never looked better. I've never felt better. It's crazy. I would have not guessed you were 49. 49? Yeah. Yeah. You look great. Thank you. Yeah. You talked about it with Sun Life and the purpose of sharing your story. And the company is really to be of service and to help others. Eventually, you are able to help your mom. Tell me about that and how it felt. So from that dark night of my soul at eight, eight months sober, and I went and I got all those jobs and money started coming in. I went back and visited my mom first. Then I was able to send my mom back to Poland, which she hadn't been back to Poland in almost 40 years. Uh, no, at that time it was 30, 34 years. She hadn't been back to Poland in 34 years. And, um, and then about two years later, I went back to Ohio and I bought her a house and it's the greatest accomplishment of my life. Um, there's nothing that will ever come close to that, to take care of the woman who carried me. To take care of, I don't think I'll be able to get this out. Um, to take care of the woman who took care of me to the best of her ability there's nothing else. That's it. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate success for me. And uh, she's not well now, but I'm able to financially make sure she's as comfortable as possible. And it's the greatest accomplishment of my life. And I don't think I'll ever, I know I'll never be able to do anything as great as that. So, um, yeah, it's the best thing ever. Sorry. She's lucky to have you as a son. So I'm curious today, that void, which we all still, or not all, still, I think that void we all have, right? That that hole inside of us. You no longer use drugs and alcohol. You're completely sober. Yes. What do you do to fill that void? I I have a relationship with God and again whatever that means to you it's none of my business and whatever it means to me is really no, none of anybody else's business but I wholeheartedly believe in a living loving God so I fill that void with the presence of that living and loving God I take a lot of walks on the beach alone um I read a lot I listen to a lot of podcasts I love yoga I have a little fountain well it's actually not a little fountain I have a big fountain with a giant Buddha head and I got nine goldfish inside of it that I feed a couple times a day and um they always seem hungry. I will I will resort to comfort foods if things get bad enough. If I'm really depressed or really anxious, I have no problem getting a pizza or eating a carton of ice cream. Yeah, every now and then a little bit of retail therapy. <laughs> Are you happy? Yes. Yes, very. I'm, I'm as happy as I'm ever going to be. 
right now, I mean, right now I'm still wiping tears from my eyes because we were talking about my mom, but I mean, all things considered, yeah, I'm as happy as I'm ever going to be. This is as good as it gets, and this is great. What do you want people to take away from your story? I want people to know that they can change, that if that if in fact that they need to change, that they can change, and that they can change in such a profound way that within a short period of time, they will look at themselves in the mirror and they will hardly recognize themselves. All right, so we're going to do a little thing called rapid fire, which is rapid questions. Um, you've been on enough podcasts. I'm sure you've done this. <laughs> I don't think I have, but yeah, let's go for it. All right, let's do this. Yeah. Um, your favorite Sun Life organic smoothie? Right now, the matcha goddess, for sure. Had it yesterday. Um, <laughs> favorite song, but I'm going to put a twist on this. I wrote favorite song, and then you told me you could sing. So you have to say it and then like just give me a little head of some of the lyrics favorite song I, I, w- I wouldn't say this is my favorite song but i definitely have been doing this in my car and i've been doing it poorly so you unfortunately are going to have to suffer through this a little bit but let's go ahead and try mama just killed a man put a gun against his head pull the trigger now he's dead mama life has just begun oh I blew it. I totally blew it. <laughs> you did not blow it at all. I'm obsessed. <laughs> what? That, that was terrible. I say I sang the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> I love it. Oh, Mama, ooh, didn't mean to make you cry. If I'm not back again this time tomorrow, carry on, carry on. That's it. The fact that those lyrics were, Mama, if I'm not here tomorrow, it's pretty amazing. Made me sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Really put the pressure on. Yeah. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.